It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. But these fellas will get such a shit shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. Okay, so lads, so the inter county um, schedule has been leaked. Colum Keyes had this in the Independent, and he seems to think that the GACCCC has plans to start the season, obviously, on October the 17th, as we know. But the first two weekends are going to be the two remaining league rounds of the National League. So that's going to happen in Oct- at the end of October, which, again, takes a lot of pressure off the clubs to get straight into championship. You know what I mean? It relaxes managers. They now have all of October to try and get um, their players 100% right for a championship start in November. And I suppose it's probably the right thing to do. It just definitely squeezes up the inter-county season into November and the first three weeks of December. So, like, I mean, I don't know, Conan, like, if this was club football being announced that this was the plan, we'd all, everyone would be up in arms. Inter-county are getting a very, very raw deal. They don't seem to be complaining at all. Now, having said that, in December, they'll probably use Croke Park for quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, and that at least the conditions in Croke Park will, will be good, the, the underground conditions. So, like, I mean, they are getting a raw deal. They're not complaining, and they're trying to squeeze their championship and two rounds of the league into about eight or nine weeks in, Oct- in October, November, and December. County's getting their all deal again, as usual. <laughs> um, I... I actually, I think it's it's ideal, like, well, given the circumstance around, because when I saw like uh, some of these counties that were scheduling their finals for their club finals for September 30th and whatever else, I was thinking, does the does the county championship, the inter county championship, need to start on October 17th? The, the GA just said that's the earliest it will start, and like I was thinking, why not just push it to November and this way? 
finishing up the league, it ties up any loose ends. Like you think of teams like Armagh and Antrim, yeah. they've been quite vociferous and like they've got a chance of getting promoted. It'll tie that up and it'll give you some games to get into the championship, like competitive games and more training time. So I think again, given where we're at in the world, like this is this is a good way of doing it. Yeah, so it looks like they'll have the provincials in November and then a quarter final, semi final and final. Um, there's no room for anything else. That's in the football. Um, apparently that it's been it's been leaked that the hurling will be given a second chance. So every hurling team is guaranteed two games um, and every football team is guaranteed at least two games, but they're using one of the games as the two league games. Do you know, Connor? So like, I mean, yeah. it, 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 there's just too many teams in the football not to do a straight knockout. And we, we did talk about uh, uh, last week about it potentially going into next year and how messy that could potentially come. It, there's no doubt it's a lot cleaner just to finish it um, just before Christmas. Yeah, I think so. I, like, I think the prospect of a season running into February was going to make it you know, you you just you just had to accept the impact that COVID was going to have on this year's championship. But you know, getting into February, then you're having a massive impact on the following year's championship. So it does it does look look a bit cleaner and like kind of you know even the prospect. I think we were talking about it of you know, did you want to do qualifiers or did you want to get into a back door? And that looked like it was going to be too tricky um, for for a football championship, particularly. Whereas you know, you have it now. You know, it's a system that hasn't been in place for a long time, but everyone can understand because of the circumstances that it has to be this way. I mean, like just it does. It, it absolutely makes sense then to give, you know, players some sort of warm up to and to, to finish up the leagues. I suppose just from a personal point of view, it's nearly you'd nearly like the championship to become, you know, the GA, inter-county GA to be coming back with a bang when it first comes back as opposed to the first two league games. But in terms of finishing up the league and giving them preparation for the championship makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Like, I mean, and we give out a lot about the different decisions made, but like the way they've given the clubs 11 weeks, they've given the county um, eight or nine weeks, the way they're, they're structured it off. I completely agree with the two league games. You can't fault what they've done here, lads. You just can't fault it. And like, I mean, one huge plus for inter-county players is the All-Ireland champions have got a December 19th or 20th for football the last weekend in September, in December before Christmas. Imagine the piss up they're going to have after winning the All-Ireland at Christmas time <laughs> with, with no club football to actually have to go back into and club manager annoying them. Yeah. And they're not all training as well in the middle of December instead. They're all everybody's finished. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be a great excuse too if it did run into January to get rid of the O'Burn Cup and the Mechana Cup and everything else? <laughs> yeah, no, it would. Like I mean, but it, listen, like we said, but to be positive about it because it's a very, very good plan within the short space of time that they have left. And their hands are tied. I saw Liam Griffin um talking about the Wexford situation. Now, we kind of made a bit of a joke out of this last week. Like, I mean, there is no doubt that it's not an ideal situation. In, in Wexford um, Liam Griffin said I understand there's a limit on time but how do you explain to a player that their season could effectively be over after a couple of matches in a few days now the one big glaring issue I had no problem with Wexford playing a straight knockout and having six rounds straight knockout they're having uh, three guaranteed group games then a, a semi-final and a final now they'll probably put in a quarter final so they've got six matches for the winners everybody always talks about the one match or two matches that teams have like the big issue with Wexford is they start on the second. Their second game then is midweek on the fifth. So teams will be out after three days. Now, that's not really fair. 
if they spread it out to week, 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 week and had six weeks and then week, 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 another six weeks with their footballers, you know, push it out into into at the start of October. And then Davy and Paul Galvin will have all of October, you know, to 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 potentially um, to potentially prepare their teams. So, like, I mean, there definitely is an issue um, with the way Wexford have done this. They've gone way too extreme on it. Um, but they have come out. It was Colin Keyes had this as well, and they've said that that was a county board meeting, and it wasn't. It was a full county board meeting, and it wasn't their CCC, their Competitions Controls Committee. So they're waiting to see the intercounty schedule finalised before they're going to finalise their dates, Connor. So again, mm. this was this this was leaked out of a county board meeting. It was a provisional look at it. There's no doubt they're trying to finish up the hurling early. But now I think when they see the two league games starting in October, I definitely think I've no problem with the structure of Wexford's championship. I think they have it squeezed too tight. Do you know? Yeah, they can, they can, they can surely push out the dates now a little bit, as opposed to having... What, what would that be? Would that be like two games in four days? You yeah, can, you, two, you know, in three days, the second and the fifth. Three days, yeah. So, so yeah, so there's, there's scope now, especially, as you said, with the league... Um, with the league, with the league games being played before championship, that they they can they can push that out uh, out a little bit. I assume I I did what I didn't see about this fully. Like, I assume that Wexford will be running off league games as well. That that like while club players will be out in the championship, they'll still get a chance to play with their if you, with league games with their clubs once the championship is over. Ah, they will. That's the minimum. I think every county people kind of forget that club players will have league games as the intercounty season's going on, and they'll they'll have games. You know, you want to play league games in November? Though I'm not that mad keen on that. <laughs> well, the, well, the intercounty have to play their bloody championship. Like, I mean, let's be honest. You're, what you're whinging about? Sometimes I think the whole oh, the clubs are getting a bad deal. It's overplayed, and I think it's fashionable now, and it's a bit populist to be going ah, oh, the clubs and losing your minds, right? So, like, I've seen most um, uh, counties' plans, and they're all fair. They're all decent. You see, Wexford's is way too short. Waterford's is too short. Now, the things they have in common is they have an outside manager. And, you know, um, county boards need to be a little bit stronger on things like that. But again, these aren't finalised. So you're losing your mind about about a lot of things when they're not definitely finalised. And another thing is, like... Most counties are doing it right, Conan, and have given a, given their club players a fair championship. It's the ones that aren't are being massively highlighted. Like this is a disgrace. This is Croke Park's fault, and it's not Croke Park fault. It's the Wexford or Waterford County Board's fault. Now, should they be answerable to Croke Park? Probably. You know, like I mean, Alan Milton is on record for saying there's no one size fits all approach, and the idea that Croke Park would police this and tell everyone they must do it a certain way is naive. I think that would be an insult to our county committees. They know the terrain best. If they're a dual county, if there's players playing in different uh, grades across different codes, it's a very, very tricky situation. You couldn't possibly organise the amount of championships the GA organise at club level from Croke Park. I take his point that maybe organising all of the competitions from Crow Park might be a little bit difficult, centralising them, all the different, you know, nuances and, you know, different structures that the county boards have. But if you're telling me there can't be a fixtures officer in Crow Park that the CPA can can go to and say, look, we're, we've got a very extreme situation in Wexford and Waterford. You know, the minimum should be a game every week rather than games mid, you know, games midweek. Go up to that officer in Crow Park. He'll make, he'll determine whether that's fair enough, and he can you know 
tell the Wexford County Board, that's not good enough. We've given you 11 weeks, you're taking the piss, change that. Do you know, Conan, I think that that's workable rather than have Crook Park dictate them all. But they should definitely have someone that's keeping an eye on them. Mm. And you know what the most important point is about this narrative around clubs being screwed over and stuff is the only solution that I've heard is get rid of the inter-county game and we'll just have clubs for the rest of the year. And it's like, that's not reasonable. Like, nobody wants no. that. It's not good for clubs. It's not good for... Like, everybody wants to watch the county championship and it benefits everybody and the county players who have been training all year. <laughs> like, they play for the county teams all day. Do you matter? So, like, the, like, that is not a solution. Get rid of the inter-county game. And that's the only thing I've heard from people who have been shouting about the clubs. That's the thing, Connor. You're like from Mayo. Like Mayo supporters are fanatical about intercounty. Imagine Mayo supporters who are all club. Most of them would be club members. Being told here, let's just focus on a on a on a club championships. You know, here and let's forget about the intercounty. Is is this the reality? on the ground or is this just a Twitter thing you know and a CPA thing and a Joe Brody thing which extreme cases are being highlighted people lose their minds is this the reality on the ground I don't think it is I no I'd agree with you Willie I, I don't think so either like I like I the, the thing that's kind of skewered this for me is that like there there might be a couple like club players from Water, from Wexford for example that, that, that were looking at the prospect of you know, having two games in four days and then their championship is over. You can sympathise with that, right? Yeah. But, the, but the, you have that at one end of the scale. And then at the other end of the scale, as Conan said, you've, you've people given out and then, you know, making no alternatives whatsoever. And the situation that they're giving out doesn't compare to the plight of a Wexford, Wexford club player who might be out of the championship in four days. It's small beans compared to it. And that, that that's the problem. What's getting lost in all this is that, like, you're you're in danger then of, of classing everything as you know that there are some genuine concerns that there's some not genuine concerns and the problem is the genuine concerns mightn't be listened to because they just get overwrought by all these other small little complaints that don't really matter there's, yeah. there's, like i i don't i don't hear it on the ground what what i'm hearing that like i've heard murmurs on the ground at the moment that like oh sure like say in mayo for example that we have um we won league game um, and then we were running into championship pretty much and it's going to be over by the end of September. And then people are giving out that like, you know, saying that like, oh, I was sure nobody will care about the league, the rest of the league then that's going to be run off once the championship is over. But that's purely down to the individual motivation of the player. If you've no interest, that that's your that's your prerogative. Like that's that's not the, 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 the fault of the county board for the, for the scheduling of it or whatever. So that, that's that's the thing is that like the, the, that that's my main my main issue with that is that the genuine concerns are being they're being overlooked because there's so much there's so many people complaining about the small fry and as Conan said there's very little alternative being presented either yeah that's the thing like I mean the Wexford I know I'm repeating myself but the Wexford club championships is a, a first round and then you have a you have another you have another you're guaranteed two games like I mean that's all inter-county players are ever guaranteed you know what I mean in a normal championship that's w- within the time frame that you have and you have to play off five or six rounds and then you have a hurling like everybody talks about the teams that go out in that first round and that's fair enough but there's a, there's a, the other half of teams has three games you know and then you have a, another half of them has four five six. like i mean six rounds to finish your championship in a minimum uh, in a small space of time is not the end of the world but like i mean that's i don't know i think these things can get lost a little bit um, and this is not a normal year, Conan, and we keep having to say this. And it, if we're talking about situations next year and we're asking to shorten the intercounty season to, you know, the end of July and give the rest of the year to clubs, every county board then should be able to manage their club championship around 
you know, give them more, guarantee them more championship games because you've got five months, you know, you've got five months maybe until you get to the All-Ireland phase. But this is an exceptional year and I really, I'm, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of the, of the, of the giving out. But then again, I suppose the giving out maybe will have Wexford definitely, you'd imagine they'll change their minds. I think the GEA have helped that by putting the two league games in October. I can see Wexford will change that, will change that, um, will change that structure. So I don't know, have we anything more to add to that? No, like that's like if if every county was doing what Wexford were doing or what they proposed to do, then we would be giving out. But our solution would be give them eleven weeks instead, which is just so happens is what the GA have done. Yeah. And given the club as you said, even the club's eleven weeks to give them the county nine, ten weeks. I, I just don't see like there's no other solution being presented other than just give clubs twenty odd weeks to finish their championship. That's yeah. that's not reasonable. So some of the clubs have been given an insight into the challenges that they're going to be facing. Greg Ballycallan, um, club chairman Dave O'Neill has been talking about, he says, we'll have to sanitise all our equipment, hurls, cones, balls, ladders, all of it, before and after. We'll have we'll have sanitising dispensers there on site when players arrive. We'll make sure once players arrive, they go straight out on the pitch. When training is over, kids will have to leave immediately and we'll have to sanitise it and get it ready for the next group. At the moment, we'll, clo- we'll, close, off, we'll close off our facilities. Well, you don't have to do that. It's not like you want to do that. You have to. Then he says, the only facility we'll have open is the toilets. That's the rule, which will be sanitised immediately after every group leaves. She's like, I mean, I was just kind of thinking that when you read that and you think of sanitising everything before... Okay, is that a little bit extreme, Conan? Like, I mean, is that even doable? I'm not. I'm not too sure um, that it definitely is. I mean, like what he said there, balls and and herds. Like everybody has their own herd. And yeah, balls. that's their responsibility. I would have thought. Yeah, and the slitters, slitters, slitters would be the club's responsibility. So unless they have like a a, a big bucket that they're just going to throw yeah. all the slitters in, or oh, but yeah, sure that would like, no that that would destroy the slitters, no? Because they they become all heavy and wet. Yeah, but like the cones, like no, no, there's no players going to be touching the cones. Like you know, like yeah. the manager again, he'll look after his own cones. And what was the other ladders? Forget about the ladders. You'd be all right. Like don't, don't worry about that. We have played football in three months. Just get back into it. Yeah, so, you're, um, not, that, you're not climbing up ladders. You're kind of doing the little <laughs> dance along them, aren't you? That kind of. <laughs> Don't suggest that one area. You'll have a manager all over. <laughs> yeah, but that, they, 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 here's the thing. And then he, then he says players will have parents at home who have underlying conditions. And I just hope that we can all be responsible enough as an association not to pressure those players into taking a risk. That's a big thing that your star player is a little bit worried and there's pressure going on him um, to play. I I don't think that'll be a big issue. Jesus, I think this is a little bit more serious than a normal year. And if somebody's nervous about playing, I think they'll be given a complete free pass, um, Connor. I'm I'm not yeah. sure that would be an issue. Now, I don't know what... I just couldn't imagine any manager I've ever played under putting pressure on a on a on a on a any kind of aged player who is worried about his parents and the whole, you know, coronavirus. Yeah, like I, I like I've heard scenarios envisioned where like you have like if it's the best player at your club or something like that, and he has parents at home with an underlying condition, will there be pressure on him? But the best thing I've heard, that the, the comforting thing or the good thing I've heard that like anybody who's talked about this has just said that like there'll be absolutely no pressure on anybody. And I think everybody's going to buy into that from the get-go. And even like it's, I was I was looking at um, 
Tyrone's schedule there for for what they you know what they have for league games and stuff like that. And there was a, a very pointed note at the bottom of their statement saying that of course it it should be you know it should be hammered home that anybody who has any issue with playing whatsoever there be there be no pressure on it. So it's it's just good to hear it from a from an official point of view, as opposed to it being something that people will just kind of understand. It's nearly like written into law that, you know, nobody, there, there can't be any pressure, but anybody, but like, you, you just like to, you just like to think that everybody is sensible enough to consider in the, the circumstances and considering that every, everything that everybody has gone through, that nobody be stupid enough or nobody would be devious enough to, to put pressure on somebody where they might not feel comfortable playing otherwise. Yeah, the Tyrone one's interesting now that you mention it, Connor. Like, I mean, they're going straight knockout. They're getting no bad press for going straight knockout because that's what they usually do. Now, I know the league in Tyrone is taken very seriously and that they would be seen as good competitive games, but their championship is straight knockout, or am I mistaken? No, the championship is not a straight knockout, yeah. So it's a, from from what I could see, it's one round of fixtures and then it's a straight into a quarterfinals. The like it like it it's really packed. It's a really packed schedule. The only thing I'll say about the Tyrone one is that the dates they've lined out at the moment has league has players playing league on Fridays and Sundays, um, over consecutive weeks. I think there's four league ends in the first ten days. So like maybe they're like as you said, the leagues are competitive. That's what the league split into two, by the way. So like that's the same in Mayo. Every league is being split in. If it has maybe twelve teams, it's being split into six and six. So like the action's going to come thick and fast. And the only thing I'll say about that is that like, you know, you, you talked to Barry Solon recently as well. Injuries are probably going to be inevitable. And then when you have players playing two games in three days for two weekends in a row, you can imagine that in Tyrone there could be a lot of people with soft tissue injuries and 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 hamstring injuries and groin injuries, whatever. But like it's 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 fairly clearly you definitely couldn't have a complaint about the lack of games if you were in Tyrone. You might have an issue with the schedule. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the knockout, but like I mean, like I said, it's it's uh, it's getting no bad press at all. I don't see anybody giving out about it. Porrig McDonald is a Kilmacook Croaks coaching director, and he's been talking about the challenges they face. Now, wait and hear this. Like I mean, when you actually start thinking about the practicalities of this, the challenge for us is that most of the age groups from under fourteen downwards, you're talking about anything between eighty to one hundred and twenty kids in each group. Says uh, McDonald, that's just the boys. You have the camogie and the ladies on top of that to fit in as well. So actually just giving them the physical space to operate safely and within the guidelines is very challenging. The work of the COVID supervisor, getting all the health questionnaires filled out, taking everyone's temperature, all that stuff. Are you doing that for each session? How many supervisors are we going to need per age group? Does each of those pods in the initial phase need their own supervisor? That's the kind of stuff we need to work out. And I'm glad that's Parik's problem and not mine, Connor. That's all I'm saying. I was thinking about um, Barry Bowden. Kill McCullough probably the same. Like the Barry Bowden is that stat they've got more under 14s than Leitrim has. <laughs> and they're trying to do it on their couple of pitches like with these with these uh, regulations where it has to be 10 people per session or for whatever it is but yeah like that's that's going to be really tough I was thinking it's, it's going to be handy though for the player who likes to fake injury anyway it's going to be the handiest thing in the world for him though, to skip a session by just saying he's got a high temperature by mm. <laughs> not actually having one but it's just such an easy out for somebody who doesn't want to be bothered well it definitely is but geez, with the sheer numbers that they have like I mean it's just oh. uh it's it, it the practicalities of it are, are absolutely terrible. Like 120 children, and you're looking for a form to be filled out for every single one of them, and you're looking for children to you know parents to be responsible for taking the children's temperatures, and what if they're not and are sent home? And she's it's a terrible, messy situation. Uh, 
Potentially, there's no doubt about that. Um, Colin McShane was talking to Tomás O'Shea. Tomás is doing um, a load of interviews for Benetti Menswear, and McShane has been talking about uh, he, he he dislocated his ankle, and you have a one percent chance of doing it. It's that that rare a dislocation. But he's he's hoping to be back for the championship. It's been very very lucky for him in that the season has all been pushed back. Um, but the problem is with him. He was saying is that he can't. He hasn't been able to get quality physio on it. So I presume he's he's been in a cast, um, Connor, and then the cast comes off, and then you know the pain. Mm. of doing that friction and doing all that stuff. And he had, probably has to do that on himself because he can't be close enough to anybody else um, to do it. So, you know, it, it being pushed back and everything is grand, but definitely for his recovery. And you'd actually worry if, it, if you know, if it has, because that scar tissue can cause a lot of problems, you know. And yeah, um, he hasn't been able to see a physio and get the ultrasound done on it and get all that scar tissue broken up. Um, you know, he could have problems later in the year. The thing you worry about, like not not just the ankle itself, which is obviously so rare. Like he said himself, you have one percent chance of doing it. Like I'm not sure what the what the percentage chance of of a recurring recurring injury for that ankle would be. But the other thing with that is that like Colin McShane will be looking at coming back into it, like play a bit of with his club maybe, but coming back into a championship that's going to be really thick and fast. And it's not just the ankle; it's the compensatory injuries that come with it. You know, so he might have put so much work into his ankle that his calf might begin to suffer. And then, you yeah. know, that, that, that with people that have been out for a long time and he doesn't have a chance to ease himself back into it. And that'll be the case for like, I, I was even thinking when you mentioned Carl McShane as well, that, 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 the, the the kind of long period off has, has, has benefited Mayo. Like I'm thinking with, with the likes of Jason Doherty and Colin Boyle who are coming back from long-term injuries, but they're coming back into a completely different environment where you're thinking you have, you know, it's going to be knockout. You know, there's no way of easing yourself back in. So as well as like, you know, the, the amount of people who, you know, you look at the Bundesliga, there's been an increase in injuries from because people weren't used to doing the normal sort of training. And then you have people that have been out for a long, long time that are coming back into this environment. So it's like, hopefully that the likes of Colin McShane and the likes of Jason Doherty and Colin Boyle that I mentioned are, are, are going to be OK. But there is that risk there. Yeah, no, there definitely is. So the Sunday game did a piece um, on Loud and Mead in 2010 last night, Conan, and like they did it with Peter Fitzpatrick and Joe Sheridan. And I don't know, like, I mean, it's very hard to do a piece on that. I tried Martin Sludden myself here on the show because they're obviously doing a lot of nostalgia. And Martin politely declined. Um, he didn't want to get into it. He was It came across... Um, you know, all right, the way he was, he he didn't just say no. He he explained it or whatever, and he was he was, I understood completely. But like, I mean, you can't really do a piece on that anymore without his involvement, or else what what is Joe Sheridan, you know, going to say new about it, or what's Peter Fitzpatrick going to say new about it? That's been done to death. So I was kind of ha- half um, excited about it, and then when I kind of listen to it it was a little bit kind of like that what 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 was that all about yeah i've actually um just sort of thinking about it last week and um, put up just an old tweet about it and put it on facebook just a picture of joe sheridan sort of diving over the line dropping the ball and throwing the balls bruce but i couldn't believe just how like the drama that it caused underneath and all the comments still 10 years on like you know it was just it just got everybody's backs up again, like loud people just feeling like, you know, so scarred by it and, and rightly so. And like, you know, many people laughing at them and like, it just, it just brought it all back up again 10 years later. And it's just, 
it just seems like there's not going to be a resolution for it. And like maybe that's where, where Martin Sullivan's coming from because like when I'm watching it back, I'm watching the aftermath mostly and just, you know, his actions and his decisions and like, you know, just the way he handles it. And you're not going to get anything like from talking to him 10 years later, but you, that, that's the person you want to talk to. That's that's the only person who can answer some questions about it. But, oh, look, it's gone. <laughs> it's just it's heartbreaking. Peter uh, Fitzpatrick at, at the time in the post-match interview called... Um, Martin Sludden, Dick Turpin without a mask. It's a classic. It's a classic line. But like, I mean, obviously, not consulting with his umpires was a huge ah. mistake. Um, you know, like, but it, when you say this, like, uh, Joanne Cantwell kept stressing that referees make mistakes. Now, this was a very, very bad mistake. There's no doubt about that. But the big mistake was made that this game wasn't replayed. Like, I mean, that there's no doubt about that. That if this game was replayed, that controversy is put to bed. Loud were the better team on that day. They deserved the replay. They were absolutely robbed. And I just cannot comprehend with the replays we've seen down through the years that this absolute no goal, which decided a Leinster final, how the hell it was this not decided that the fairest thing to do, you know, for the integrity of the competition and for Loud's um, you know, chances. How was that game not replayed? I can't actually remember because I wasn't working in media at the time, and I I just can't remember. I remember there had been talk about a replay, but I don't remember it being taken that seriously. It was almost like like Joe Sheridan was saying last night. It was being left up to Mead, and Mead weren't. Well, I think Mead actually should have been the big traditional county that they are. They should have offered the replay. Like they were like saying, "Well, we'll wait until we're told," you know, and then they were never actually told. So, like, I do think that Martin Sludden's mistake was a bad one, but I think that uh, Mead and the GEA's mistake, having not offered and allow, uh, facilitated a replay, was equally as bad. Do you know? Do you know what's interesting? That was uh, Willie, and just when Connor mentioned the tweet there and the reaction. So this happened in in 2010. So Twitter wasn't like I think Twitter was in existence at that stage, but only in, the, in its very early stages. And like I think if you got if that happened, let's say this year, for example, I would say that the reaction and the kind of movement behind a replay for loud and justice for loud, whatever, yeah. would, would have, could have got to such a pitch that like there would have been so much pressure on me that they probably might have thought that the only thing to do was the Sage Reaper, whereas you just didn't have that back then. Like even thinking about recent things like Newbridge or Nowhere or something like that, they developed a life of their own through mo- mostly social media exposure. And so like, I, I think if, if, if something like that happened today and the, the Mead probably would have been thinking that like the PR move for them, the right thing to do, would have been to stage replay, whereas they probably could have got away with ignoring it a bit more back then. Maybe that's too simplistic of you, but just when Connor mentioned there the 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 kind of level of the reaction that it brings on now, even ten years from now. So you can only imagine if it happened, you know, I would only imagine how Twitter or something like that would react if it happened today. And I think it probably would have it could it could well have had a had a big, bigger influence. Yeah, yeah. No, that, but like, just before you come in, Conan, it wasn't without precedent. Only two years earlier in 1998, Offaly got a replay because the referee blew it up, um, you know, a few minutes earlier and they were down in the game and they still got a replay for that. Their supporters came out and sat in the field. Now, loud supporters came in and tried to beat the shit out of Martin Slutton. So maybe they should have just sat on the pitch or done something. I actually would love you to get Martin Sutton on to ask him about giving the fan a yellow card. Really? <laughs> sort of like writing someone down and give Flash a yellow card about the fans. And like obviously his head was just scrambling at that stage. But yeah, like for me as well, like you talk about the legacy and then being a traditional county, like that's that's tarnished that one. That's that's their last Leinster title. Like so yeah. it would have been in their best interest as well to go out and win it. Like, you know, if they did win it, exactly. like, they would win. 
Yeah, but, uh, that's, the, that's the thing. And the, the chance of Mead were very strong favourites going into that. Now, Loud played great the first day, but generally the favourites will win the second day. So Mead should have offered that replay. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I no, oh, they're scrambling. The only thing I see from me now is like it should have been a penalty. Like, ah, come on. <laughs> no, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. There's no doubt about that. All right, we'll leave it there, lads, because we're continuing with our series of coaching on the show. We did fielding with Kevin Feely and we did the art of trash talking with Eamon McGee. This week, we're going to talk about the art of man marking. And one of the best man markers in the modern game is Mark O'Shea. And he joins us on the line. How's it going, Mark? Good, Willie. How are things? You well? Not too bad. How is everything down uh, south? Kerry, or Kerry have not only flattened the curve, there's no new cases in the last uh, two or three weeks. Yeah, it's good down here, Willie, that, you know, things are, things are quite, um, I suppose we're lucky in, in rural Ireland, it's, it's, uh, it's quieter. So uh, from that point of view, so thankfully there's been no cases, so hopefully that will continue. And uh, we look forward to, to getting back in the football field because it's been a long time now and it's, 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 it's about time that we, we get back to the field. Yeah, it must be driving you mad. Like, I mean, where's the Gale Talk training? Out in the beach, kicking ball out around there, I suppose. This is it, yeah. A lot of, lot of teams have uh, taken to the beach. Um, you know, the Gale Talk's included because there's, there's plenty of beaches back in West Kerry. But, uh, look, I suppose you just the things that you took for granted before, we won't be taking them for granted again. And that's that's per, that's certainly the case with football. We're watching old games there now on the... In the uh, on, on the Sunday game, where before you you know you'd be you'd be right smack bang in the middle of the championship. Now at this stage, really looking forward to going up to Croke Park. And uh, as I say, look, it'll hopefully it'll be later in the year. But uh, at least we ha- we have dates now that we're, we're we're coming back, which is great anyway. Yeah, which is great exactly. So we have some positivity. Come here, we're talking about man marking, and I want to start off by asking you this question: Is there any enjoyment in man marking someone? Um, I think there is. You know, I I was thinking about this today. I, I only started off as a cornerback when I was 20, 21 years of age. And then I suppose I, I, I've played for the rest of my career, cornerback or fullback um, with my club and my county. Well, with my club, I was lucky because uh, I suppose I was able to play in numerous positions and that was good. And, you know, there was times where I was playing in the forwards, uh, central forward and full forward even. But there's certain like, you know, I, I think... I think Gooch and these fellas did a lot of damage to, to, to players because when, when young people were growing up, they always wanted to be a Gooch. Nobody wanted to be a defender. Uh, he, was, he was that good. And he, I think that, I think there is certainly, um, you know, it's a dying art in ways because yeah. what you see now is you see kind of mass defending as opposed to one-on-one, uh, you know, man marking, which, which I had to do, which Tom O'Sullivan had to do, which Mike McCarthy had to do. Back in the day, Seamus Moynihan as well, you know, and that, that was it. Like, you had to mark your man. There was no protection. There was no support. It was just one-on-one. And, uh, you know, you, you, you learned quickly. I, I was very lucky when I started off because I remember we had the West Kerry car. Paddy was in charge, and he said, uh, see, there was, the West Kerry car was full up because you had Dara, Daryl Kinnada, Aidan McCarl, Tomas. And, you know, so it was, it was full up and he told me to hop in with Seamus Moynihan one night and he said, be like a sponge and just learn everything you can from that man because he has it down to a T. So I just watched Moynihan in training, just kept in the, what he did, the way he was able to man mark at the near hand in, um, you know, but I suppose as, as a man marker, you have to be, you have to be careful how, how you defend because, you know, if you look at, say, myself and Tom O'Sullivan, who two completely different players in the sense that Tom was lightning pace 
Um, whereas I probably just read it, uh, read the game, um, because I, I, I wouldn't have the, had the same pace as he had had. So I would have maybe stood maybe not a yard, less than a yard in front of my man, that if I had my hand out, I'd be able to touch him and he'd be behind me. Now, it's, 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 a, it's a dangerous one because, you know, if there's a ball in over the top, how quickly yeah. can you get back to, to cover off? And um, so, you know, you have, to, you have to be so focused at all times when you're playing that game. But that's, that's the way I started off, Woody, because I suppose I wouldn't have had the strength when I started off. I remember even the 2002 All-Ireland Final. I was only 11 stone. If you fast forward then 10 years, 2011 All-Ireland Final, it's 13 stone. It's two stone heavier. So right. I could actually defend a lot differently then as opposed to when I started off. So, you know, I wouldn't be taking fellas on for strength when I started off, whereas when I, when I was finishing my career, I could match fellas for strength. And um, so, like, that's why I kind of played the yard in front at the start. But as, as time went on, I was able to play side to side, you know. And, 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 but, but it's something that I did do, and I don't think forwards like it. I don't think forwards like when you kind of play them that half a yard in front because you're taking away their runs. And yeah. I'd always ask the boys, I'd always ask the, the Gooches and I'd always ask maybe James, I don't know who after, what, as, a def- as a forward, what thing don't you like a defender doing? And that was one thing that certainly they, they didn't like was when you would play that um, half yard in front. But it's something that definitely that, that, that helped me. Um, if you were marking a taller player then, you know, they, they, you know, you'd have to then mind maybe if that ball did come in high and you'd have to maybe get back side to side with them you couldn't you know you, particularly now say if you're marking Donahue like in training and there was there was high diagonal balls coming in you had to be really careful there because if you were playing in front um, you know as they say a high ball in and all of a sudden he, he, he has you you know so it's, 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 a, it's a tricky one I think you know as a defender you have to play it as you see it as well sometimes you know you have to, it depends who you're marking I remember yeah. when we used when we used to have games um, and, you know, I suppose with modern technology, particularly maybe 2010 onwards, we'd have the games of the, the, the teams that we'd be playing, be it whoever, in the next round. And you could actually zoom in on the actual player and the, the plays that they did. So I did a lot of that. I would have checked. Um, I would have done a lot of homework before games in, in watching the opponent, what leg he kicked with. Um, and, you know, one thing that I always took great stock in was if 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 we were maybe playing Galway or something, I'd always check to see how the player played in the previous game. And, you know, if he played poorly, I was really on my guard because I knew, you know, particularly if you're playing inter-county, good players rarely play bad twice. Right. So you'd really be on your guard. But um, So I did a lot of homework. I watched a lot of videos, particularly the way forwards turned, if they took you on, uh, if they were good over their head all that type of thing. And I, I think, you know, but certainly going back to the point, it is a dying art. And I think young fellas growing up, what they want to do, they want to be on the other side of the field, being maybe a Conor Callaghan or a David Clifford. There's very few people that want to man-mark now. And, and uh, it's sad because I think there's a huge, it's, it's a lovely skill being able to get down, block a ball, um, dispossess a, a fella, uh, come out with the ball then and be, turn, turn um, uh, you know, a defending situation into an attack. So, I, I think it's, I, I love watching fellas who can still do that. Keith Higgins is a great example of it, uh, even though he's probably coming to the end now. But, you know, there's, there's, there are still examples out there, but it is a dying art in my, in my uh, opinion, Colin.
Yeah, I suppose, to, like, I mean, would you have got much coaching as regards your footwork? And you mentioned tackling with the near hand. So probably the worst ever situation for a cornerback to be in is your man has the ball, he's turned and faced you, and you were backing off. In that situation, you're you're kind of a sitting duck. Like, I mean, are you looking at, at his at, at his feet at that stage? Are you looking at the ball? Or, you know, like uh, you're trying to dispossess the ball or wait for him to play it? And that's easier said than done, you know, when... This yeah. fella's pulling all kind of tricks out of the book. Are you grabbing his hand to try and put him off? What are you doing in that scenario? Yeah, well, uh, we always had a rule down here that, um, you know, when your man, th- the best way to stop your man was just don't give him the ball and get yeah. the ball before him. Now, if that didn't work, as you say, and if he gets the ball and he is taking you on, you know, you, and it started off maybe with John O'Keefe, Paddy would have been very vocal in it as well, and then we would have gone on and you know, Jack O'Connor, they all would have been vocal and getting the hand in. It's, it's stuff we used to do in training, just one-on-ones, and, and we, we used to do it, and I used to love doing it. Um, and again, it's just like you said, it's like get, just getting a hand in, just get, just trying to put them off as much as you can, and and uh, being an absolute nuisance, really. But I used to always wait for them to take their play, and when they took their play, I used to try and pounce them, and, and yeah. because that's when they were most vulnerable. Um like there were certain forwards there and geez, I think they were so underrated. You're, I'm talking about the likes of Andy Moore and he was a nightmare to play against. And I, I remember playing against him in, in Crow Park with 50 yards of space in front of us. I remember the 2011 semi-final stands out and just like, you're a sitting duck because there's, as I say, 50 yards of space in front of you and you're trying to, you're trying to take this fella on and he, or he's t- taking you on. And again, you're just training, wait for him to take that hop or that solo so that you can get the hand in. Because uh, you see, you see it's very difficult. You see some backs and they're doing a whole lot of slapping and slapping and slapping, and they're wasting their time and energy because no, it's very unusual to dispossess a good forward. You know, when he in between plays, you know, they usually have it, it held that. fairly tight. Are you you're wasting your time slapping until they're actually going to start playing it, right? You are, you are, yeah. I, I think like you know, sometimes you know that they're going to get the ball, and if you can be strong with your arms and kind of get it, get a kind of a nudge in without giving away a free to kind of put them off a small bit, that kind of helps. Um, and something that I used to always do was, you know, if the play, if the play was maybe a team were coming on uh, attacking against us, maybe their midfielder had the ball, I'd always be pushing my opponent out, trying to, trying to keep him away from the, the danger. Right. And uh, I'd, I'd just giving him little nudges to push him away from the, the, the play. And uh, sometimes it worked, but uh, other times it didn't. But um no, look, you you'd really be on your guard then when you were marking a forward that had two feet. Like that was that was one of the toughest things because, you know, the likes of Stevie McDonald, um, Bernard Brogan, Alan Brogan, um, these fellas, even you know, they were just really hard to mark because you didn't know what side they were going to turn. Was it left or right? Because they had the, they were able to kick with the right, they were able to kick with the left. So it was always a huge challenge trying to take them on. And then, not only that then, but it's a challenge. If you're being beaten in the middle of the field, it's a huge challenge then. Yeah. Well, well uh, if, you, if, if, if you're being beaten in the middle field, Mark, you waste your time standing out in front of your man because they're getting the ball too high up the field. I suppose marking from the front works if the ball is down the other end of the field. You know what I mean? And they don't have an area yeah. to run out into. Yeah, but like there was there was there was days there, particularly I suppose towards the end, um, where you know we'd be playing maybe Dublin or so, and you'd you'd be in trouble in the middle of the park, and you could just the dubs are coming at you, and 
you know, there's no place to hide then, you know, because you're, you're, you know, you, you obviously have to be very tight because you know your man is going to get the ball. And in those situations, you know, you'd have, a, there was, you know, you had different types of forwards. Like you'd, you'd um, I remember now, like say, when, when I started off, you know, you had the likes of James Masters from Cork, who was, who was very good at, say, maybe taking the ball in the loop. Yeah. He maybe might win, wait for somebody else to, to, to win it and he'd be off the shoulder and he was a sweet kicker. Declan Quill from Kerry, very similar player. And, and so you'd have to kind of, you'd have to just kind of look, study the player that you were marking, who, who it was. If it was an Andy Moran or a Michael Meehan, you knew that they were going to take you on. Yeah. If it was a Bernard Brogan, you knew that this guy was seriously potent and could, could uh, kill you on the scoreboard. So it all depended on the player that you were marking. And you in, kind of, you know, in a way, Mark, were the lads coming on the loop much harder to mark because they can just because usually when they're coming on the loop, they're coming on the loop at another player that distracts you a little bit, you know, and then they're gone around behind him. Yeah, I actually believe it or not, I found those players the easiest players to mark, right? Um, because you know you knew what they were going to do, so so you were kind of you were getting very physically with that type of a player then. Whereas, like you know, if you were marking. One of the toughest I'd marked had to be Andy Moore because right. every time he got the ball, and the thing about Andy was, like, you know when you're playing against a real honest forward when, like, they make one run, the ball doesn't come. They make a second run. Yeah, yeah. And next thing, they're making five runs and the <laughs> ball still hasn't come. Oh, Andy just kept going. He kept going. And, like, right up until the end, you saw him, like, how effective he was because he was just incredible at getting out in front of his man because he'd, he'd be after five or six runs and he'd still be doing it. And I just, it was always a real tough day out when you're marking Andy Moore because then when he got the ball, first thing he was doing was taking you on. And if he didn't, if he didn't, um, if he wasn't able to, to, to beat you that way, he'd either pass it, he could kick a point, uh, but he invariably he did the right thing with the ball. And uh, he was, I, I always found him really hard to mark because, you know, as I say, strong, take you on. And, uh, you know, as we spoke about already, trying to get your, your, your hand to the ball, you know, make a tackle, uh, dispossess. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but um, that was the plan anyway, you know. Right, okay, and he's physically very strong. You made the point about going from 11 stone to 13 stone. Some forwards like to kind of get that bit of contact, maybe even to trip you up or knock you away, you know, like, I mean, yeah. no one, the forwards, say Kevin McManaman is the most obvious one, but Andy Moran would be as well. They want you to mark them slowly. They'll take one step away from you and then go into you and then they have the, you know, they have That's you it. pushed up. Yeah, no, definitely. And you mentioned Kevin McManaman. Um, no, I didn't mark him that much, but he, you see, he was one of those players too that's like, you know, and you're right, they kind of lean in and, and then they go at you and, um, it's it's very hard. It's 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 really hard. And the only way you can really work on that is by doing it in training, by by having those one on ones. And as yeah. a coach now myself, it's something that I that I would do with the players because uh, you kind of you learn fairly fast who your good defenders, who who can stop a man up, and yeah. and uh, stop the momentum, and then get in your hand, then get in your. But certainly, when I got stronger, maybe put on a bit of weight, I I felt that I you know when I was able to stop them up, I was that bit more stronger then and I was able to get better tackles in I mean yeah. in 20, 2002 for example I was marking Gooch a lot in training and then you go from marking someone like Gooch to marking Dermot Mars in an All-Ireland final and it's like chalk and cheese two different players completely yeah. um, so, so like there's certain certain um, 
things that you look back in and you say, geez, you know, if I had different training, maybe if I was marking the likes of a Johnny Crowley or a Darrell Canada, two similar players to maybe Dermot Marsden, maybe you'd have a better chance. But, um, you know, and then the day, the final 2002, was a, I, I played poorly um, myself. And, you know, but you learn from these things and you, certainly you kind of, you, you, you try and improve. But strength was an area that I had to uh, work on. So I suppose, you know, Pat Flanagan put a huge emphasis on the gym when, they, when he came in in 2004 and I worked hard in the gym and got to a kind of a, a level where I could take fellas on physically. And, um, you know, it certainly helped me with my career because depending, did, you know, everyone's did, different. Did you did you notice, lads, when they lean into you and feel that bit of strength that they might not try to take you on? Because I often go to try and take a fella on and if I felt, Jesus, he kind of pushes you back a bit, you might go back and recycle it because he's saying, I mean, he's, oh, too str- yeah. he's too strong. Like I often see the Mayo defenders, that's maybe why they're they're good. You might see even someone like Mannion that might go into Harrison and go, geez, no, you know, without a yeah. good bit of speed behind me from a standing start, I'm not going to try and attempt this, you know. So, like, being being a big, strong defender is a huge, you know, head start against, oh, a, yeah. against a much faster, weaker defender, for example. It is, for sure. And, like, I mean, if you were a forward and you were taking the likes of Seamus Moynihan on, you would no way bring the ball into the tackle with him because he was no. so strong. Um, you know, so you had certainly different uh, examples of players. Uh, my own brother Tomas would have been naturally strong, whereas I would have had to to, to work on that that side of it. And uh, like you know, certainly then when you go on, and even when you had the ball yourself, Colm, you you felt stronger holding a player off with, yeah. with one hand. Like you just felt a lot stronger. And and you know, it's it's. And I I remember in those earlier days, you know, if, if there was a fella a strong fella taking you on, you weren't you weren't gonna try and match them for strength but what you did do like I suppose the same rules applied you still tried to get the hand in you still tried to dispossess uh, when they were soloing or, or hopping get a hand in or you know block a ball when they were about to kick and and the same rules applied although in, in years later you know when you were stronger it made you a better player because you were able to you were able to I suppose do those things knowing that you were a lot stronger, knowing that if somebody took you on, that you'd, you'd match them, you know? Yeah, exactly. Listen, Mark, thanks very much for all that. That's, uh, that's uh, great stuff. We'll talk to you again. Cheers, Wally. Thanks a lot. Let's chill the beans. There still is a lot of work to be done yet. Just give us a small bit of time, just give us a small bit of time, let's chill the beans. But I tell you, give us a year, a year and a bit. Just give us a small bit of time, just give us a small bit of time, let's chill the beans, let's chill the beans, beans, let's chill the beans, let's chill the beans, beans, let's chill the beans. There still is a lot of work to be done yet. Just give us a small bit of time, just give us a small bit of time, let's chill the beans. But I tell you, give us a year, a year and a bit. Just give us a small bit of time, just give us a small bit of time, let's chill the beans. Okay, lads, so geez, the newspaper is very disappointing, uh, I thought, this Sunday. There's only one piece in the Sunday Independent, which is usually very strong for GA, and it's Colin O'Rourke. And he's going over a lot of the kind of old stuff. The headline is, another fine mess. 
will see us having a drink and a haircut before we can play. And I think that argument, has, look, I completely agree with his argument. And, you know, June 29th is way too late and all those things. But I'm, I'm kind of moved on from talking about that now. Uh, that's not going to change now. There's no doubt. There's no doubt they made a huge mistake um, with that. But he's talking about a similar team. Um, he's talking about the COVID supervisor, which we had a laugh about um, last week. And he uses the example of Kilmacool Croaks, which we've been talking about. He says, with 80, 183 teams going through this rigmarole, each player has to have a form filled out for every night's training or game. And then the Greens better not get into government anytime soon or they'll shut down the GA altogether. 183 teams um, would mean 3,500 players which could all add up to 10,000 individual pieces of paper every week. And that's just one club. So, like, I mean, he is using an extreme version in Kilmacook Croaks. And he's, he's having a bit of a laugh um, about that. But he does make the point, if somebody has not taken their temperature and filled it, filled it out in the form, will they be turned away? What happens if Junior jumps out of Mammy's car and hears off to join his friends and nobody knows the first thing about a questionnaire? Or what happens about the person who has not got a printer? And, like, they are valid... They're valid questions, you know, like, I mean, it's 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 not going to be easy, Conan, to police all this. Nobody wants the job of a COVID supervisor. I saw Portleash um, announced on Twitter for people to nominate themselves. And like, I mean, I just can't bring myself to do it. I'm happy in my ambassadorial role. And I don't think that I need to be a supervisor in my in my career right now. Yeah, who's going to come into your role then if you move over? It's just it would be too complicated. So. <laughs> when I when I read Colin Rook though, I was actually I was starting to feel a bit annoyed, and I thought this this must be how Willie feels when I'm talking to him and I'm going through all these doomsday scenarios and I'm taking out <laughs> every single thing that could go wrong. I thought he was being a bit mischievous and like like I know it's going to be complicated, but one way around it I would imagine is like if you haven't taken a temperature, like let everybody know this, you're not getting in, so don't come down or if. If you're ticking yes on any of the form, then you're you're not going to get into room come down sort of thing. And yeah, I imagine as well that like the printer is one thing that I thought of straight away. But then I just imagine that surely you'll be able to collect these forms somewhere. Somebody will print them out. This is what the COVID supervisor will do when you're doing the report. At least you print them out yeah. for everybody. And, 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 and you're right. I, I can foresee this messy situation that Colin's talking about on the very first day of training. But when people realise you're not getting in without your temperature checked and you're not getting in without the questionnaire, you know, I don't. He is. Think, you're right. He is thinking of the doomsday scenario. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm sorry for all those years, really. They're probably done your head. <laughs> he says, uh, Connor, then he finishes it up and he says, the only logical conclusion that I can come to in all of this is that the advisory group was so clever um, that they decided that by putting forward such unenforceable guidelines that they will be ignored very quickly. That will certainly happen. But as always, clubs will do the right thing by their members. Within the next few weeks, I'll be at, I'll be um, within the next few weeks I will be that uh, sentry at the gate and will be expected to check on young players and maybe adults as well some young boy or girl will arrive at the gate mad fraction without a form what do you think I'll do so Rourke's just going to let them on in I suppose I would let them on in too like I mean you're looking at these are when we're talking about young children now who are not in a, a very high risk um, you know very high risk category and you know, maybe maybe Connor, you just put your hand to their head and say, "Go on, you you whippersnapper." The the important thing, well, like I think, is operating within the spirit of the guidelines. Like nobody is going to think it's what it's what it's a fifteen page document, I think, and you know, like I, I don't think anybody is going to be operating and able to operate it to a hundred percent. It just takes like you're on about the role of the COVID supervisor there. I had in my head that like while obviously every club is going to have to have an appointed COVID officer, that there's going to be an there should hopefully be an awful lot of people within the club that can carry out 
the majority of the duties you do, that can help carry out the majority of the duties involved. And as well as that, that like, you know, that that people just like take on personal responsibility and don't be a dick about it. Like, you know, to, to try and do your best to have your temperature checked and to fill out whatever forms you have and relieve the responsibility on the COVID officer or on the people that have to look after this as much as possible. Like that, that, a, that a manager or trainer of a team, for example, could lead it and just have to check in with the COVID officer and something like that, that like you might not be ticking absolutely every single box, but you're making the best effort to do it. And you'd like to think that, GA, the vast majority of GA clubs will do that. Yeah, actually, I, I mentioned there's only one piece in the Sunday Independent that I'm going to talk about. The other one is Dermot Crow, and he's talking about statues. Um, and the headline is Immortalising the Immortal. There are, and the subheadline is There are surprisingly few statues remembering greats of the games. And, you know, it was a little bit too boring for me to talk about on the, chat, on the, on the show. So I didn't really um, have much interest in reading that. Maybe it's because statues are in the, in the news a lot by people pulling them down. Um, maybe kind of got him interested in how many statues um, there are commemorating GA players. I don't really, I don't care to, I don't care to discuss that. Because you haven't got your statue in Port Leash fully yet. <laughs> yeah, well, that would definitely be pulled down by now. There's no doubt about that. Um, in the Sunday, in the Sunday Times, then we have an interesting piece from Dennis Walsh. Dennis has been going a little bit left field the last few uh, weeks, um, and he's talking to uh, Ronan Brady, who's a former Roscommon footballer. Can't say I remember him too much. Um, and the headline here is taking the wheel. Um, the transformation from footballer to circus artist finally allowed Ronan Brady to fully express himself. So Ronan Brady ran away to the circus. I always kind of thought that was a little bit of a joke, you know, like you say, <laughs> I think you say that as a child, you're going to run away to the circus or something. He's actually done it. So he's now in a, he's now a circus act. Um, he said, it starts off saying, in the build-up to Ronan Brady's breakthrough performance in Riot at the Dublin's Fringe Festival, one of the show's producers discovered by chance that the muscular artist moving in harmony with a giant aluminium wheel used to play Gaelic football for us comments. So his act is, he's, there's a picture of him here, he's just hanging out of a big, it's basically like the kind of thing you, you'd, you'd wriggle around your hips when you were a child. It's just a huge version, a huge version of that. And it's aluminium. So he says Brady was still trying to figure out how how to make it work for him and the wheel. He knew that he no longer wanted to be a teacher and his feelings for football had run a spectrum from all in to fold. So he gave up his job as a teacher. He gave up Gaelic games and he went to join the circus. It's an incredible story, really. Like, I mean, it's like he sees Gizzy Ling's story and goes, look, I'll see you're 20 and I'm going to raise you another 20, uh, Connor. Yeah, talking about not being defined as a Gaelic footballer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a really, like, really good piece, like really different and interesting. But the whole time yeah. I was reading it, thinking, why is Willie bringing this up? What does he want to ask me or slag me about here? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it reminded me of the time um, Carlos McWilliams, who he plays for Derry now, and uh, he played for Derry Miners at the time, but he missed an also a championship match to to go do an Irish dancing competition. I think it was All Ireland, an All Ireland competition, and Joe Brawley wrote a whole article dedicated to him. Dragging him off for missing uh, an Ulster Championship game because if you go on the Irish dance, and that was crazy carry on from Brawley, but this guy was 17 as well, like, and obviously he's Irish dancing since he was four or whatever. And uh, yeah, Brawley just dedicated a whole article about uh, it was basically around the idea of like a, a man would play the Ulster Championship sort of thing, but now we've got fullbacks in Derry who are dancing instead. And it's like, oh, that piece has not aged well at all. It wasn't good at the time, and <laughs> it's even worse when you think about it now. Right. Okay. Do you remember him playing? Um... Connor, you're our Connor correspondent. 
No, I, I don't remember him playing, but like my brother uh, alerted me to this, to, to his kind of story there a few weeks ago, because his uh He's a cousin of uh, my brother teaches in Boyle in Roscommon and he's uh, he's a cousin of the principal there. So I, I'd heard this story before Sunday, but it's it's, uh, it's, just, it's just fascinating. Like I there's there's a couple of really interesting uh, tidbits in it about um, how his experience in uh, he was a cornerback for Roscommon, but how his experience with the circus and that sort of stuff has kind of made him think that he should have let him go a little more when he was playing football, because he said he used to be the traditional tight mark and cornerback and that all he all he'd think about before a game was stopping his man from playing as opposed to playing himself. Now, you know, trying to play a bit himself and maybe get up the field. Now he probably played in a different era, but just like he he thinks it's ridiculous now about how how worried he used to be about that, just just purely containing his man compared to the pressure that he that he has to put himself under now. I think he tells a couple of stories about being put on the spot and told to do something, you know, that he's no experience of before and that how he found that liberating. So uh no, it's it's just a, it's a really fascinating story and and just to 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 fair play to Dennis Welsh again because like like Neil Fitzpatrick last week is been finding stories that are they're completely removed from COVID nineteen. These stories could be in the paper, you know, any time of the year. You yeah. know, we've been out a couple of times before about how, you know, we get fed up of people GA players being asked. Whereas, you know, the, these are the, the these these are interesting regardless of the times we find them ourselves in at the moment. And uh and yeah, just just like if anyone hasn't read it, I just encourage them to go back because it's really really fascinating. All right, so now we get on to the Irish Mail on Sunday, and there's some heavier pieces in um, this paper um, yesterday. We have a special report from Mark Gallagher, the GEA uh, two bonded to their past. So the subheadline is on this is association must revisit the historical links to white supremacist and slavery advocate John Mitchell. So he's t- making the argument that you know a club like Castlebar Mitchells should be uh, renamed. Um, or the Mitch's part taken away and there's other clubs as well. He says there are over 1,600 GA clubs on this island and at least 10 of them are named in honour of John Mitchell. So he um, lived in America before he moved to Ireland. He did a lot of work for the nationalist movement in Ireland. And I think that's why the GA clubs are named, or that is why the GA clubs are named after him. But he um, settled in the American South and he started a newspaper, The Southern Citizen, to promote the value and virtue of slavery, both for Negroes and white men. In his writing, Michael called black people an, inf- an infinitely inferior people and stated that it wasn't a crime or wrong to hold slaves, buy slaves or keep slaves. So obviously not a very nice person and was a white supremacist. Um, Paul Rouse later in the piece argues then that if you sit down and begin this process of whether certain clubs should be renamed, um, you have to be clear about what your purpose is in doing it. What is the purpose of the name of the name of the club and what message do you want to send out? Michael Cusack published anti-Semitic views. Do we go back and rename the Cusack stand, take down a statue in Croke Park, rename Cusack Park in Ennis and Mullingar because of that? Or do we accept that it was of its time? Part of me thinks it's of its time. Uh, and then the other part of me says, would Castlebar Mitchells look any different if it was just Castlebar? And if there's connections to a white supremacist, um, John Mitchell, I don't have a very strong opinion either way, lad. So it might be a little bit 
heavy for us to be discussing here. Um, there's another piece. Michael Dignan's in the uh, Irish Mail on Sunday, and he's talking about uh, central level. The G were G were facing a loss of up to 57 million. He's talking about the finances. He says that's why I strongly believe that there has to be government intervention. Whatever about scrambling financially this year, every county will do, be doing the same next year, unless there's some level of financial assistance. We've su all submitted our accounts and projections to Croke Park. Even with the most positive projections in recent weeks, there's going to be a substantial loss. And like, it got me thinking about the GEA make a lot of money and they spend a lot of money. Wouldn't it be a lot more prudent if they had put some money away for a rainy day instead of the the, the club in Leash that wanted a, a you know a, a, an extension to their dress room? I know that's you know a worthy grant, but the example I'm using is next year, for example, if the budget is so tight, it's going to affect games development. It's going to affect all knockdown effect. And I suppose to get they, they would, on the other hand, Conan, they would get serious criticism if they were putting money away. So it's not, it's not really easy for the GEA, is it? Yeah, we were probably the first to criticize them as yeah. well. But I do think about that, that stats, it always changes, but 70-odd percent go straight back into the games. And in hindsight now, it's like, oh, was that very wise? Like, could you not just put 60% and kept on the side? And like this Michael Dignan piece is actually a perfect example of, of what we're talking about. Like, you know, how how everybody, the county boards and the clubs, they all need the, the inter-county game and the gate receipts coming back. You know, we need this thing bouncing again. And he's really painting a, a very stark picture there. And actually, I wasn't as worried until, until I read his piece, to be honest. Yeah, well, that's it. He's a county board chairman, so I suppose he could give a, a bit of an insight onto that. Um, also in the Irish Mail on Sunday, they've been consistently the strongest on GEA. Well, they committed more to GEA pieces than any other newspaper. So he's a piece with um, Antrim footballer Declan Lynch, and he's a Sinn Féin advisor as well, and he's talking about an all-inclusive uh, vision for the association in the North. And to be honest with you, I don't know half enough of that kind of subject to even start commenting on it. Um, so I'm not going to comment on it. I was bad enough on the Mark Gallagher piece there with, with the with the with the club name. So I'm not I'm not going to go, start going down giving an opinion on unionists. I know there been some banners Conan in Antrim after the new GA club's been set up saying GA is anti-British and they're not welcome. Yeah, and that's that's a difficulty. I think that's probably the difficulty Jarvis Burns ran into one time where he was talking about you know well he was just musing about getting rid of the national anthem and. The, you know, stuff like the tricolor and stuff at the Stanford, you know, maybe be more GA rather than be so tied to, to nationalism. I don't know, it's difficult, like, you know, because that's where the GA sprang from, but it is a different world now. And, like, I would like to see way more unionists play because it's just a class sport more than anything, you know, and it's such a great community thing. So uh, it, would, it would just be great, like, we're we're so far down the line now, like we should be having more inclusive, more inclusivity and we have to start that conversation. Yeah, exactly. So Sunday World then, just to finish up, lads, is Sean McGoldrick talks to Michal Briody at the Club Players Association and we've kind of covered all that stuff. We're not going to go back over it. Pat Spillane um, has a, a strange enough piece in that the first five five uh, paragraphs are about himself. So he talks about one far, sure far way to lose friends and gain enemies is to write a newspaper column. On occasions I've earned the wrath of the entire province of Ulster, but nothing prepared me for the wave of reaction my recent articles on COVID-19 provoked. Last month I suggested that the government and the GA had initially reacted brilliantly to the coronavirus pan, uh, pandemic. They had become overly cautious. Um, 
then he talks about what he argued. And then he says, on the other hand, the keyboard, he says, most of those who got in touch, including government, one government minister and a couple of other leading politicians, agreed with me. On the other hand, the keyboard warriors and some broadcasters decided to take uh, cheap pot shots at me. What does Pat Spillane know about medical issues? Why should anybody take medical advice from Spillane? It was a lazy response, and I won't labour the point. You've just laboured the point, uh, Pat, if I have to say. The first, like I say, the first six paragraphs are about himself. And not only are they about himself, they're about an opinion he completely flip-flopped on. So first he thought John Horne was completely right. Then he flip-flopped it on in a week. Now he's crying, poor me, that people are complaining and giving him grief about it. Like, I mean, I didn't want to read on, Conan, after that. I actually didn't want to read on. If you're going to start an opinion piece talking about yourself, about an opinion that you've completely turned uh, 360 on or 180 on, well, then I don't really want to read on. Yeah, ironically, he was talking about the GA being behind, you know, the government and stuff. But I was thinking, Pat Spillane is behind on this issue. <laughs> you know, this this yeah. was a piece for two weeks ago. I'm I'm disappointed he didn't read on though, because he got he got another special quote in there at the very end, the very last paragraph. What's that now? Let me see. It was from oh, it, people, it was from the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> we'll finish. We'll finish on the Buddha quote then. Um, I actually, I actually did read on. I'm just saying I didn't. Um, he actually went on to 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 describe John Horan's Sunday game interview as car crash. He agreed with it. He actually agreed with it. It's incredible how you can actually call something a car crash when you agreed with it after, and then changed your mind on it. And now it's a car crash. Anyways, we'll leave. We'll we'll finish the show on this quote. Perhaps we ought to remember the words of the Buddha who said, oh, wait there, will I give the context of this? Certainly there are interesting days ahead with lots of twists and turns in, on this unique journey. Perhaps we ought to remember the words of the Buddha who said, the secret for both mind and body is not to mourn the past, worry about the future or participate uh, or anticipate troubles, but to live in the present moment wisely and earnestly. We'll talk to you on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> And when I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So it opened up. We're running a small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the brakes when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just, I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Waterford today because, like, I, I'm, heart, I'm heartbroken. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.